Good evening. It's a joy to be back with you tonight. I enjoyed our time worshiping our great God together today. And trust that as we look into His Word tonight, that by God's Spirit it can be a penetrating sword and mold us and shape us, change our thinking. And as we understand the truth, I pray that God uses it to affect us into the core of our being with our will and emotions that we go out of here and we live differently uh, having come together to, to fellowship today and worship our great God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You again this evening asking for Your aid during this time. We're thankful that You have poured out Your Spirit, that He has awakened us who were dead in trespasses and sins and made us alive together in Christ. It's Your Spirit, Lord, that works within us to convict us where we fall and where we fail. We just ask for His help during this time that distractions can be removed from our minds, that the cares of the life that might have been born as people came through these doors tonight would be lifted, and that we together can look intently into the law of liberty and we can be convinced of the message of this psalm. Lord, we need Your truth. We live in the midst of a world in which Satan lays traps before us, traps that would lure our flesh away. He would have us think thoughts that are not pleasing to You and to set ideals before us that are tied to this earth. He would have us focus on anything but Your truth. So we pray that Your Spirit, though, would reign in our hearts this night and that our time together in the Word, that our fellowship would be sweet and that as we leave this place, we can be just a little bit more like our dear Savior by Your Spirit's work this evening. We pray this for Your glory. Amen. The calendar is about to turn 2011 to 2012, and with that, every four years we'll have the Olympic Games again next summer. I was thinking back to the Summer Games of 2008. The U.S. track team had had a very poor showing. There were high hopes before the 2008 Olympics, and they just weren't delivering. But on one day in late August, there were two gold medal contenders that were going to take the track that day, the men's 4x100 relay and the women's 4x100 relay. With the reigning world champion running the anchor leg for the men, the hopes were high, and the first three legs of that 4x100 relay went very well until Darvis Patton failed to deliver the baton to Tyson Gay. Later that day, the same fate hit the ladies from the United States of America. And in the passing of the baton, the baton was dropped 
and a team that had such high hopes failed miserably. Although Tyson Gay, the guy that ran the anchor, or was going to run the anchor for that race, tried to take the blame for not grabbing the baton, the guy that had run the, the third leg, Darvis Patton, made a telling statement, and this is what he said, Tyson's a humble guy, but I know it's my job to get the guy the baton, and I didn't do it. He failed to deliver what was given to him. In Psalm 78, we're going to see the importance of one generation passing the truth of God's Word to the next. And as I have titled this message tonight, this is a message that we must deliver. At stake is not a gold medal that would now be hanging in someone's closet. At stake is the hearts and lives of our kids. At stake is the leaders and the servants and the workers in our local churches that will pick up the baton. It's my privilege at First Baptist to be the principal. That's good most days. Every now and again there are rough days. Uh, but it's also a joy I have each Sunday to be able to teach a Sunday school class in which my parents are members and people that were my Awana leaders and were my Sunday school teachers, it's now my privilege to teach them. And as I open God's Word each week, I'm so thankful for a faithful generation that delivered to me God's truth. Psalm 78 is a song of instruction written by Asaph. Asaph is a member of a great family of musicians in the Jewish temple. And as he opens this psalm, he has a sense of urgency and he wants the people to listen to his message. He says, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Listen up. Wake up. Tune into this. You need to get this message. And what he is going to do is in a relatively short amount of words, he is going to give a history a salvation history of the people of Israel. A story that he'll refer to as a dark saying. But it's not as though something is hidden or mysterious that's being revealed. Rather, I think that in his calling it a dark saying, it's a story that will evoke wonder at the extraordinary things that he will say. It's profound. It includes weighty truths about the, the history of the nation that brings them to this point. He continues by saying in verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that he has done. As you look into this psalm tonight, I hope that we walk away with this truth firmly implanted in our minds, is that we must help the next generation learn to praise our great God. All of us, as fathers and mothers with our own children, 
and as a church family with those young lives that are part of this fellowship here, we must help this generation learn to praise our great God. As we begin, I, as we look into a psalm, this psalm is typical with many others where in the first few verses of the psalm, the key idea is kernelized, it's brought together, brought to a point, and then the remainder of the psalm then fleshes that out and helps us see the significance. And in this psalm, verses 1 through 8, carry the main idea of that he's trying to get across, and then the verses following that will be that history of the nation of Israel. And Lord willing, at the end of our time together tonight, we'll have two men stand and they'll read this lengthy psalm. But hopefully as we do, having spent some time studying it ahead of time, we'll be able to understand it in its context. But how is this message delivered? The first question that you have there on your handout. How is this message delivered? Well, each generation must fulfill its role as a link in the chain of learning. That first bullet there, each generation must fulfill its role as a link in the chain of learning. And in this psalm, We've already read a little bit of this. And how many generations have we seen thus far in the verses that we read? And feel free, if I ask a question, go ahead and answer out. I tend to be a preachy teacher. But I, I like the interaction. It helps me know you're engaged. And it helps me be able to respond. And together as we actively are engaged in worship, I think it's good for us to be quick. How many generations have we seen so far? We've had, we, I think we've heard, and what, which generation is that that we've seen? Our fathers, verse 3, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. So there's two generations that have been seen thus far. We will not conceal them from their children, but to tell to the generation to come. So now what do we have? Three generations will tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. It is vitally important that each generation sees their part in the link in the chain of learning. And we all know what a chain is. It's not like a, a rope of seven strands. If you have a rope of seven strands and you lose one strand, you still have six that are still going to bear the weight. But in a chain... Each link is the most important link. Any link that is missing spells ruin for the load that's being carried. But let's continue on and read verse 5 and 6. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born. Four. So uh, who in here is bold enough to say that they're a grandparent? All right. Okay, how about, you know, how about Mr. Cameron? Do you mind standing just for a minute? Uh, I grew up with your boys, so that makes you old enough to be my dad. So. But, and I'm not picking on age here. But Mr. Karaman and his generation has a responsibility to my generation. 
fathers to teach their children and, and not to conceal things. And I have a... Kevin, can you stand for a minute? This is my son. I have a responsibility to teach him. But then in verse 6, we need all of these generations active so that his kids, children yet to come, might know what? Thanks, guys. You can sit down. Might know how great a God that we serve. This is reminiscent of Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, is to the children of Israel like I pledge allegiance to the flag is to you and I. It's their Shema. It's their Pledge of Allegiance. Deuteronomy 6. says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgment which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all His statutes and His commandments which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit down in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. How is this message delivered? It's when each generation fulfills its role in teaching about our great God. There's four generations listed in this psalm. As we continue on, another question I'd like us to consider is why did God give this message? Why is it so important for, through Asaph that God would inspire him and he would record this for them, but also for us? And I think we'll see the answer to that question as we look into verses 7 and 8. I'll start reading in verse 6. That the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandment. Three things very simply in verse 7. That they might put their confidence in God. Where do we want to put our confidence? Where, apart from the Spirit's aid, where do we as Americans want to put our confidence? In ourselves, in people. I can work hard enough. I'm smart enough. I'm a self-made man. The hymn, Stand Up for Jesus, what does it remind us about the arm of flesh? It will, it will fail you. God, help us to avoid putting our confidence in our health because we can lose it. In our money, it can be gone in an instant. Our job, our homes, our reputation, our confidence must be in God. 
As we look into this passage, there's certainly truths that we must teach. As we were reminded in Deuteronomy 6, parents had a responsibility to teach their children. Deuteronomy, second giving of the law. God gave the law at Sinai. The people got to the land. They went in with the spies, came back out. Ten were bad and two were good, right? And what happened to everyone in that generation of adults except for Joshua and Caleb? They died. So now it's the kids that are now the parents. And before they go into the land, Moses reminds them that you need to teach your children. Yes, content. But whether they're our kids, our own offspring, or our children in our church, they need content. They need to learn truths, but they need to learn so much more. How can you help someone be confident in God if you're not confident in God? Um, my parents taught me a lot, but frankly, I don't read. I have a few of my dad's pithy sayings that he would tell me as I was complaining on the way to work. He was a carpenter, and I didn't really want to work as hard as he wanted me to work. Um, but he and my mom, I think, successfully drove that out from me. But I don't remember a lot of the words they instructed me with. You know, I, that, you know the things that leave the most poignant lessons in my mind is when during the 80s my dad was self-employed. In the 70s, early 70s, that was good to be a carpenter and be self-employed. In the 80s, it was not good. When he had no work, no money, and they kept trusting God. That showed me that my parents are trusting God. And it sh- my dad taught me how to work hard. Even when he didn't have work, he, didn't, he never sat a day at home, at work, or at home, feeling sorry for himself. He got up, he made coffee. While he made his lunch, took a cup of coffee back to my mom, walked downstairs, and I would hear him dragging his fingers on the long hallway and jumping past the doors and he was off. He was to lumber yards, he was to architects offices, he was to building sites looking. He was working and he was trusting. He had his confidence in God and that was unflinching. We teach our kids, we teach the next generation, not just when we tell them what to do but when we allow them in and we show them what it means to have confidence in God. What else are they to deliver? Second point there, after teaching this or this message that men might put their confidence in God, very straight from the text, that men may remember God's works. Had God done anything for the nation of Israel in their history? What what had God done for the nation of Israel in their history? Freed them from Egypt. God sends Moses from the backside of nowhere to this king and says, let my people go. And he says, no. And God says, oh yes. And God delivered his people. But they got outside the land and then what? They got trapped, right? They got Well, they got pinned up against the Red Sea. Certain doom, right? No. What did God do? He... he made the water stand on their ends and no movie maker can ever recreate the scene that Jehovah did that day when He delivered His people and then He crushed the enemies of the people of God. 
What else did they, what did, did they do? And we'll read about some of this here in a little bit. No water. Speak to the stone. Strike the stone. And here comes the water. No food. And here comes the manna from heaven. No meat. And here comes the quail. This psalmist is challenging the people here to teach their children and the children to come that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works. The children saw the sea stand on end and probably walked through there, many of them, and ate the manna. But their children didn't see these things. And they're being reminded, you've got to teach your kids how great a works that God has done. And then also, the end of that verse, that men may obey His commands. The third bullet point there into that question. That men may obey His commands. Now, is God just a tyrant in heaven that's barking out orders and never acting on behalf of His people? No. We've already been reminded here tonight of some of the things He's done. But in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, before we hear that first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What does God remind His people of? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God delivered. God acted on behalf of His people. And He says, this is what I have done for you. I have provided now, don't serve another God. Serve me alone. No graven images. He always paints the commands against the backdrop of what He has done, what He has accomplished on our behalf. The whole purpose of this story is to tell how great God is and what wondrous things He has done. And as God has done so much, it certainly is appropriate that He would ask us to obey but as you look into this passage, that's not the only reason these positive things, confidence in God and that men would remember God's work and that men would obey God's command. There's another reason that he gives in verse 8, and it's not so positive. After reminding them what they should do, that people should put their confidence in God and not forget what He's done and obey His commandments, and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful. God gave this message, that last bullet point, to break the prior generation's pattern. To break the prior generation's pattern. This was a stubborn generation. And who's giving this? Asaph. He is part of that generation. While this is troubling to read about, it to me is appreciated the candor with which the salvation history of the people of Israel would be given warts and all. Not just a flowery recounting of the good times, but an accurate recounting of even failures and struggles. Uh, Deuteronomy, again, chapter 21 and verse 18. 
If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or mother, and when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them, then his father or mother shall seize him and bring him to the elders of the city at the gateway of his hometown, and they shall say to the elder, the son is stubborn and rebellious, and basically the son is stoned. Well, here it's acknowledged that this generation was stubborn. They were rebellious. Verses 2 and 3, this was a generation whose heart was unprepared and whose spirit was unfaithful. Their heart, their spirit. These ideas point to the dynamic center of their being. This is who they were. This was their values. Not what they said, but what was genuinely in their heart. They were unprepared. They hadn't spent time meditating on the truths from Jehovah. They hadn't taken the belief in and worship of God seriously. And their spirit was unfaithful, would vacillate between times of commitment, at least apparent commitment, and times where there was just plain rebellion. What generation is this he's referring to? He's referring to, I believe, the generation that entered the land. Children in the wilderness wanderings who now are the adults. And what does God tell them before he goes in? Well, listen as I read a portion from Deuteronomy 4, 7-10. through 10. For what great nation is there that has a God so near as to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there? that his statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children also. Or even the passage that was read this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 8. What does this generation do after they were reminded about the manna and all that God had done, that God was bringing them into the land of brooks and fountains, a land where you'll eat food without scarcity, and I will dry them out before you. Verse 11, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His ordinances, and His statutes that I'm commanding you today. When the people entered the land of Canaan, God told them to drive the Canaanites out. In the area where the people of Israel would actually live, destroy them man, woman, and child, because of their idolatry and the sacrifice of their children and worship. And the people on the, on the perimeter, areas where they wouldn't be living, God said, subdue them, conquer them. I'll drive them out before you. Drive them out, lest your hearts turn away from me. And what, do, what happens to the people of Israel? The book of Judges recounts it. Rather than driving the Canaanites out of the land, the people of Israel had Canaan and their values and their beliefs driven into their hearts. 
They were a stubborn and rebellious group. Well, this is a perplexing passage as we think that God, is through Asaph, is driving this truth home. Teach your kids. Teach your grandkids and those yet to come so that they'll serve Me. They'll love Me. They'll, they will praise Me for who I am and what I've done and not be like this generation that has failed. This generation. And then as we go on through the rest of this passage, and at this time I'd like those men to be ready here to read. And it's going to be a long portion, so the, the temptation is to let our minds wander. But I've, I've included some details here that I want you to listen for in this next question. What details are included in this history that is going to be read here in just a moment? But let's listen for marvelous things that God did for His people. Let's listen Pay attention for those acts of rebellion done by the people of Israel. God's response in wrath and judgment. But even in these times, we'll also see God's kindness. So I wrote those down so you can look at them and listen as two men will now stand. So someone was asked to read Psalm 78. That's Mark speaking from on high in the sound booth. And he's going to read... Uh, verses 9 through 39, and then Pastor Talbert's going to pick up right from there and read verses 40 through 72. So please listen carefully as they read. Cut 
shutting down the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they kept on sinning. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. So he ended their days in futility and their years in peril. Whenever God slew them, they would seek him. They eagerly turned to him again. They remembered that God was their rock, that God, most high, was their redeemer. But then they would flatter him with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet, he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time, he was angry in anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return forever. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and became the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power. The day when he remembered them his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Moab. He turned the rivers to blood and their streams they could not drink. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave also the crops of grasshopper and the product of their labor to the locusts. And he destroyed their vines and hailstones and their sycamore trees with frost. And he gave over their cattle to hailstones and their herds and he sent upon him his burning anger, fury, indignation, and trouble, a band of destroying angels. He leveled a path for his anger. He did not spare their souls from death, but gave over their life to the plague. He smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the first issue of their virility in the tents of men. But he led forth his own people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them safely so that they did not fear, but the sea engulfed their enemies. So he brought them to his holy land, to his hill country, which his right hand had gained. And he also drove out the nations before them and apportioned them for an inheritance by measurement. He made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. Yet they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. And they turned aside like a treacherous bow. For they provoked him with their places and aroused his jealousy with their graven images. And when God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly toward Israel. So that he abandoned the dwelling place of Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men, and gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. He also delivered his people to the sword, and he was filled with wrath at his inheritance. Fire devoured his young men. His virgins had no wedding song. His priests fell by the sword. His widows could not even weep. Then the Lord awoke from, as from sleep like a warrior overcome by wine. And he drove his adversaries backward and put them in everlasting reproach. He also rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah. Now 
Thank you. A long passage, but in just a, a few verses, we're reminded of so much of what God had done. And there's no question that God had done marvelous things as we read along with them all of the plagues that God rained down on Egypt, the brutal taskmasters, what He had provided, how He had saved them. But even in the midst of times where God's judgment would come, what would the people do? They might turn, but yet it was just with their lips and in their heart they really had not turned back toward God. So though judgment came, we also saw that in verse 39, He remembered that they were but flesh. He restrained His anger time after time again. He was merciful to them. And in the end, was true. We see His covenant faithfulness, His loyalty to His people. And we conclude the psalm with David on the throne. So what lessons should we learn from this history? The last question here on the sheet. There is a crucial link between the past, the present, and the future generation. I hope we come away from tonight with that thought reinforced. It's not us and them, these young kids in the church. There is, has to be a vital link. Um, are teens easy to talk to? Evan, what do you think? Are you easy to talk to? <laughs> Sorry, I'm picking on Evan. Uh, you know what? If we take time and talk to them, they, they really are pretty easy to talk to. It's when we're too busy or we might get annoyed. Did you know how loud they were? I was trying to get through and they were right in my way. They have no cons they're not considerate at all. And maybe they're not. But um, if we're annoyed with them or they're irritated with us, we are breaking this chain. We don't want our kids to grow up and just do what we say because we said to do it. If we do that, we've failed. But if we can invest in them and they see how great God is, all that He's done and all that He expects and are convinced of these truths in their heart, now that's success. Because it's not that they need to follow me or do what I say. They need to be convinced of the truths in this book. I would ask us though, as you look in the mirror, have we put which generation are we? Are we living by verse seven where we're putting our confidence in God, we're remembering his great works and we're obeying his commands commandments? Or does the description in verse eight describe us a stubborn and rebellious people whose spirit was not prepared, whose heart was unfaithful. Because if that's us, then we've got to do business with God, get on our knees, and take whatever distraction out of our life that's there that's putting anything in the center of our mind. When we have nothing to do, when we have some free time, where does our mind run? runs to anything but our great God and that cruel cross on which Christ died for us and if we rejoice 
in the core of our being with anything else, then we're just that rebellious generation. But if we appreciate what God has done, we can't be satisfied. We can't rest until those to whom we need to give the baton to have the baton in their hand. Now that generation, I would say, um, all right, Zach, me, you're a pastor, but you too from your parents, we've got a responsibility as we reach our hand back for that baton that our hand is open and we grab on. Um, I, my parents aren't here tonight, so they can't say much. My wife, though, she'd fill in details if you want to talk to her. Do I agree with my parents on everything? And they're good and godly people. No, I don't. Um, we, none of us wear tunics, and we expect you know, that in, as time goes, culture changes a little bit, and there's modifications that are made. However, I will say that there, there are, I don't think there's any values that my parents have that I don't have. And I don't say that to be arrogant. That comes across wrong. I was saying we have a responsibility as people, our parents, and others that have taught us in Sunday school and have had us over to their home and they've invested in us. We've got a responsibility not to be cynical, but to believe the message and to grasp onto the truth that's delivered. And if we successfully deliver God's truth, then our kids who are going to face things that we don't face, but they're going to be convinced of God's greatness, His goodness, they'll appreciate His salvation, then they're going to live a holy life in their time and in their place. What are the lessons can we learn from this passage? And I think these are encouraging and challenging at the same time. The second bullet there, blessing does not always mean that all is well. When the manna came, when the quail came, God gave them meat. Was everything good with them? No. And God judged them even when the meat was still in their mouth. Right? So there are times of plenty, and we shouldn't just assume that if my bank account is full and my bills are paid, that all is well and I must be living right and God must be pleased. Well, He may or may not be pleased with you at that time. Similarly, though, the next um, line there, disaster or judgment does not mean that all is lost. Even in the time where God was judging His people, punishing them, He had a view to an end. And this was all still part of God's good and gracious plan. So when judgment comes, that doesn't mean that all is lost. We shouldn't give up. I think another interesting observation here from this passage we read in verse 60, or Pastor Adam read, that so he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh. What had dwelt at Shiloh? Or who had dwelt at Shiloh? That was the place where the tabernacle had been set up. The Ark of the Covenant was there at Shiloh, where he had pinched his tent, but he abandoned Shiloh. Joseph, who is Joseph's son? We read about here. Ephraim. Joseph, he was a, a great man. Did God use Joseph in the history of the nation of Israel? Certainly. He was part of the physical salvation there of, of his brothers in that famine. 
preserving that line. But God turned away from Ephraim. So God's use of a place or a person is no cause for complacency. Um, Every church member here at Ambassador or in the cornfields or in Troy, wherever our local assembly meets, should not assume that just because God is at work in and through this place now, that He will be five years, ten years, twenty years from now. Are we satisfied with where we are today? I hope not. I mean, I'm 40. I'm halfway through at least. It means you, I know, it's like, hello, those of you that might be a little bit older, like it took you this long to figure it out, we better not just be living for what we see and what we can touch and feel. We have our kids and we have the gospel that's been given to us, this truth deposit. We have to earnestly contend for the faith that's once delivered to the saints and serve as our link, be it that of a grandparent, a parent, or a child, in this link of learning. I hope that as we have looked in this passage tonight, that we'll be committed to helping the next generation learn to praise our great God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is with joy that we come to You knowing that You are always a faithful God. While we vacillate, while in our desire and our actions and our attitudes, we struggle. We're a people that are torn. Yet You continue to seek us out. You continue to work in us that we might have a desire to please You and then the ability to do so. Lord, thank You for this psalm. Thank You for the way that You have recounted the history of Your dealings with Your people here in this, these verses. Lord, as a pastor, as a husband, as a parent, as a child of my parents, And those who have preached the truth faithfully to me, Lord, I ask for myself and for everyone here tonight that we would realize the vital importance of each generation embracing Your truth and each generation giving the Gospel to the lost around them. But in as we have observed here from the nation of Israel, we certainly can apply these same principles here in our churches that each generation must see You in Your greatness, must praise You, must obey You, and must help that next generation learn to serve You, learn to love You, and learn to value You above everything. Lord, as we are together, I pray that Your Spirit might convict where perhaps Some here have been rebellious, have been given much, but yet a spirit, a heart, was unprepared, unfaithful. May they confess their sin, Lord, and rejoice that You are faithful and just to forgive sins and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. Lord, in the end, we pray that all of us would see You as our great King, rejoice in what You've done for us, and encourage everyone around us to love and serve You faithfully.
We pray this for the glory of Christ. Amen.